Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who is present here and now, for being a God who loves us and restores us. Lord, we ask that you enter into this time, because if it's about my work or my words or my will or ability, nothing will happen. But when your spirit shows up, when your life-giving breath flows, lives are transformed, people are changed. And so, Lord, we submit these moments to you, to your glory, and to your work. It's your holy name we pray. Amen. Continuing our series on idols um, here in the season of Lent. And this is a little different than other sermon series I give because uh, very often before a sermon series, we'll kind of plan out week by week where we're going to go and what we want to do. But this one is more of a discovery for me as well as for you. And so kind of journeying with us and as we go, realizing like, okay, these need to be discovered or explored or talked about more. And so last week gave an overview of why we're good idol worshipers and how each one of us is wired up because of our um, desire to worship, having a heart that wants something to gravitate towards to worship, having a heart that lives in community and so understands having authority over us, as well as being people who want to be autonomous. And this whole creates this ability for us all to be idol worshipers. And so I hope that as you listen today, you'll hear not so much as, do I have any idols that I worship? But instead, Lord, reveal to me which idols I worship. Reveal to me the places where my heart is focused on the wrong thing, has put another God on the throne. And like most things in life, I don't think idol worship happens just immediately. You don't wake up one morning and go, I'm going to I'm gonna worship the living God, and then wake up the next morning and go, nope, now we're going to worship this piece of wood I carved. It doesn't work like that. Instead, it's really this long, slippery slope down into idol worship. I enjoy watching this show. Do not judge me, but I enjoy watching this show. It's from, um, the original show is Breaking Bad, which is the uh, amazing Amazing TV show, insofar as it's well-made, well-written. It's not about good things, okay? Let's just put that on the table. But the quality of the show is just phenomenal. This is a prequel to it, and this is about this man, Saul Goodman, who we meet in Breaking Bad, and he's already a corrupt lawyer. He's helping, he'll do anything he can to get his clients off, the drug dealers off, do whatever laws he has to break. And the Better Call Saul premise is how did this guy, Jimmy McGill, become Saul Goodman? And we see this slow descent in there. And this season especially, we know there's going to be six seasons, and we're in the fifth season right now. We know that, or we see now, some of these small decisions that he's made are starting to snowball into this person. Fascinating show, but I think very true about the way idol worship works. It is this, this slow thing. Our hearts become slowly numb to the fact that that has taken control. That has been put on the throne. That has become our God. We don't wake up one morning and decide to worship it. We slowly, gradually become that place. And again, it's not just, am I doing this? It's where. Where is this? Okay. 
So I want to use um, a Bible story and zoom in on that today and use this story as the way that we're going to think about the, um, this idea of discovering where our idols are. This guy is Gideon, and he's visited by an angel of the Lord right here. And this is in the book of Judges. I would encourage you today, this is we're going to be zooming into the story. Grab your Bible, open up to Judges 6, so you can walk through it with us. If you have a phone or an iPad or whatever, you are more than free to open that up to your Bible app um, and be following it that way. But let's open up to Judges 6 as that is the place that we're going to be in. Judges is very early in the Bible. We have our Pentateuch, our Bid 5, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then we're going to jump into Joshua. Then we're going to hit Judges. So it's very, very early in the Bible. Uh, Judges chapter 6. And here is a very clear memory that I have from college to begin our time in Judges. There was an Old Testament class that I took, and in the Old Testament class, there was a test coming up, and this was one of those rare moments in my educational career that I did not study long and hard for the test, and the night before, I realized, oh, there's a test I have to take. This, and so I'm trying with the best of my ability to jam as much information into my brain as I can to take the test the next morning. I'm sure I'm alone in that. No one of you ever did that in any of your college or high school courses. Try and take as much as I can in, and I'm reading through the book of which I did not read enough that I should have been reading, and there's a line that jumps out at me. If Joshua is like a beautiful flowing river, Judges is where it all mucks up and the dam comes and the water becomes stagnant and like bacteria filled. I'm like, oh, that's a pretty cool image. And I walked into my Old Testament class. I open up the test and one of my short answer questions is, how does the book compare and contrast Joshua and Judges? Yes! This is the moment that I've been waiting for in all of my school. I know exactly the image that he used. I read that page of the book. And so... The great part about the illustration, and me never forgetting the contrast, and hopefully you don't either, is it's so true. Joshua is this man who's just leading the Israelites through, and they're going to the promised land, and they're taking places. We have Joshua in the wall of Jericho. We have all of these great battles. He's establishing this throne, establishing this kingdom, and then he dies. And judges come, and now the people go through the same pattern. They sin. They have the consequences of their sin reaped against them. They call out for salvation, and God saves them. You see this all in the beginning of Judges, Judges chapter 6. And this is on repeat in the story. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed over Israel. And because of Midian, the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places in the mountains. So the Midianites are coming and destroying everything. Then we go down to verse 6. Thus Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. This is the murky water. They do something wrong. They live in that sin for a while. For how long? Seven years. They realize, oh man, this is not going great. God, save us. You know what God does? He saves them. 
He saves them for a period, and then you know what else happens next? They sin. They live in sin. They call out for salvation. God saves them. You know what happens after that? They sin. This is the whole book. Over and over and over again. We're going to see Gideon, okay? And what happens with Gideon. So, you may be asking yourself, who are the Midianites? Great question. I have the answer for you right here. Midianites are from, we go down through Noah, we go to Shem, that is one of Noah's sons. Going through his son, we get to Abraham, the story you heard. Abraham is the father of the people. Abraham and Sarah are supposed to have the, the baby of the promise. Well, they decided to try things their own way and do it the old-fashioned way with Hagar, his maidservant, because God wasn't fast enough. That produced Ishmael. Ishmael produces the Ishmaelites, which is where the uh, Muslims trace their lineage through. Then you have, after Sarah dies, he marries a new wife, Keturah. She has some sons. One of them is Midian, and they become the Midianites. So here's the verse. Abraham took another wife whose name is Keturah. She bore for him a lot of different sons. Midian, you see there, Ishbak. Um, then the sons of Dedun going on. All of these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. And so we have the first dysfunctional family in the Bible, right? Because guess how the sons feel when they're sent away as sons of Abraham, but sons of the concubines, they're given some gifts. And you notice the verse says, he gave everything he had to Isaac and sent those sons away. The Ishmaelites, the Midianites caused trouble for the Israelites all the time. Deep, deep seated resentment, generational resentment. So here they are. They're overtaken. God's going to save them, and he's going to save them through Gideon. So Gideon, um, so Gideon comes up, and I don't want to show you that verse quite yet, but Gideon um, just called out of the people, and he's going to save them, and they're worshiping Baal, the idol Baal, and God says, go destroy the idol Baal. And Gideon goes, oh, okay, after a wondrous sign that he has, that this is definitely the angel of the Lord who's telling him to do it. He has this beautiful sign go destroy the, the um, idol ball. He's going to go do it. And what I love about Gideon is Gideon's like you and me. Gideon has to do this, but look at 627. He's nervous. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the townspeople to do it by day, he did it by night. You ever been afraid of God's call and to do it? You're like, yeah, I think I should do it, but maybe this is a little easier way to do it. So he does it by night. All the Midianites wake up, and they see that their idol's been destroyed, and they're mad. And they decide they want to kill Gideon, right? Gideon doesn't say anything. Gideon's dad says something and goes, how about this? You think Baal's a real god. Let's let Baal defend himself. The Midianites go, huh, that's not a bad plan. Let's let that happen. So they gather and they wait for Baal to defend himself. Meanwhile, Gideon's trying to figure out what to do with all the Midianites and Ishmaelites, everyone coming to attack him. So God calls him to go against the people and to attack 
the Midnight's Israelites, but he wants to make sure it's God. So this is the story that we're familiar with. You've probably heard in Sunday school. He puts out a fleece, right? Puts out a fleece and he says, God, if you're telling me to do this, make the fleece be wet with dew, but all the ground around it dry. He wakes up in the morning, fleece is wet. He like brings it out, fills buckets with water. goes, wow, look at that. And again, Gideon's like you and me. It's not good enough. So what does he say? This is great. I mean, because these are the things that I would probably say to him as well. Okay. So he says this. Then God said to Gideon, in order to see whether you're delivering me by my hand, as you have said, he's going to lay out a fleece of wool and do it. And then look at this next verse. Okay. Let's, um, in 6.39, again, Gideon being like you and me, then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me. Let me speak one more time. Why? Because what you did the first time, cool, but not good enough. This time, God, make all the ground wet and the fleece dry. So God does it. And Gideon goes, ha, huh, okay, now I know it's you. And so Gideon then rallies the army and says, let's go and take out these people. And this is, again, like us. God looks at the army and goes, we have a problem. And Gideon goes, what do you mean we have a problem? He goes, you see all those people you have? He has like 30,000 people. If you take all 30,000 of those people into battle and you win, you know who's going to get the, the claim, the victory? You are. Because you're fickle humans who will claim that you've been doing it. You've been living under the Midianites for seven years, but now you're going to go, look, look at what we did. And so God tells him, the troops that are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take the credit away from me saying, my own hand has delivered me. Who does that sound like? Me and you. Has God ever done something cool in your life and you twitchly go, wow, look at that cool thing I just did. Look at the way that I, I made all that work out. In my, whoa, look at that. Boy, I'm sure glad I have all these abilities and skills. No, he goes, you have far too many people. First thing I want you to do is stand up and say, anyone who wants to go home, go home. People go, that's a pretty good deal. I don't want to fight the Midianites. We're pretty sure we're going to lose to them. So 20,000 of the 30,000 people decide to go home. How do you think Gideon feels about that? Not great. But God says, hmm, still too many. Gideon goes, really? This is too many? To defeat that huge army? And God goes, yeah, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to fill them out even harder. They go to the water. And you're going to have them drink from the water. And if you... <laughs> this part to me is just so funny. Because if they drink like every normal human in the world drinks... Send them home. How, if you're going to a river for water, how are you going to drink the water? You're going to scoop it up and you're going to drink it, right? You're not even going to think about it. That's what you're going to do. The other way to drink the water, I suppose, is to stick your head into the water and lap it up like a dog. But you know, the only people who do that are crazy people. Can you see any person walking to a river and going, oh, I need myself a drink. Bam, face in the water and just start drinking like a dog? No, no one does that. And out of the 10,000 people, you know how many people stuck their head in the water to drink? 300. 
300 nutso people, 300 weird people are sitting their face in the water to drink like a dog. And he says, I want you to keep the 300. Send the other 9,000 home. Can you see Gideon go, really, God? This is the bunch I'm stuck with? All of these people? And you know what God says? Yes. Why? Because who will get the victory now? Ah, me. God's going to give the victory to God of Yahweh. Yahweh God, not to the Midianites or the Israelites, but to him. He's going to get the glory. Okay, now we're ready to battle. And so, boom, they go into battle and they win. And they are victorious. And they keep winning. And they rush all of the people out of the land. And this normal guy who's been questioning and doing all these things is given the victory into their hand. And then the part of the story that we need to pause on talking about idols. Before we get there, I have to say one thing. What is an afad so you know what is going on? There is um, a garment that God intends the priests to make to wear. And he tells them to make this afad. It's kind of like a robe kind of something that they wear over themselves and God commands in Exodus they'll make an afad of gold of blue, purple and crimson yarn of fine twisted linen skillfully worked this beautiful robe and they wear it when they're going to seek the will of God Okay, and we see David later he wears it, he has a question so he says to the priest, go get me the afad so I can put it on and ask God Okay, so that's what the afad is now, jump into your Bibles, open up to Gideon Chapter 8, starting with verse 22. After the victory, after everything's happened, they've dominated, they've won, then the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And what are you thinking? Way to go, Gideon. Yes, you said the right answer. But then Gideon realizes, he says, let me make a request of each one of you. Give me an earring that you have taken as booty. So give me one of your earrings you've taken. And they said, we will willingly give them, verse 25. They answered, so they spread a garment and each threw into an earring he had taken as booty. The weight of the golden earrings requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Verse 27, Gideon made an afad of it and put it in his town in Ophrah. And all Israel prostituted themselves to it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Gideon says this right answer. Lord, yes, you'll worship the Lord your God. He's the one. And then he builds this afad. You have to, you have to believe for that answer. He thinks this will be helpful will have a coat for us to seek the will of God. We'll have it here in our town. But what did the people do with it? It became the object of their worship. The booty from which they took and plundered the, from the people that God gave them the victory turned into this coat that became the object of their worship. And you notice that line there, and Didion's himself it became a snare for him we very quickly take credit 
and start to believe things have power and are God that are not. Even good things. Anything that is not God himself can become an idol. Gideon's victory that God gave him. Gideon, I believe, wanting to give them something good, religious, something to point to God, this afad, quickly became an idol. There's a book called The Great Divorce that C.S. Lewis wrote, and it's a bus ride from hell to heaven. And on this bus ride, um, all of these, it's a fictional account, so it's not about trying to teach about hell and heaven, but it's an amazing book. But on this bus ride, many of these people in hell get off the bus, and people from heaven, from their life, come to try to convince them to stay in heaven. And each one of them has a different thing that they're clinging to that is not God. And the, the conversation I remember the most is there is a woman who gets off the bus, and she lost a child when she was alive. And she gave her whole life over to grieving for this child that she missed loving her husband and her kids. And they were saying to her, come in, come in. And she said, when is ever the love of a child wrong? And the angel replied back, when it replaces the love of God, the love of a child is wrong. Even things that are good for us, even things that have their, their roots can become an idol. Anything that is not the living God, Yahweh God, we can turn to worship and it can become an idol. You know, we live in a, a world where, um, I don't know if you've heard, but there's this thing called the coronavirus kind of raging around right now. If you haven't, just Google it. But as this rages around, there's a question that's been kind of bubbling inside of me. And the question reminds me of um, Rome back in the early days of Christianity. And Rome would be hit with plagues many times because they didn't know hygiene. They didn't know about medicine. I mean, they, it was primitive, right? 2,000 years ago. And when plagues happened, all the citizens of Rome would flee the city because all they knew was get out, get away from people. And the sick were left alone and dying inside the city. And it became so that the Christians said, we're going to stay inside the city and care for the sick because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's more important that I show them love than that I breathe my next breath. Because worshiping the one true God and loving our neighbor as ourselves is more important than fearing for our life because we as Christians know what happens when we die. And some of those people who were in the city and were sick became well. And when they became well, they looked around and they said, who didn't leave us when we were sick? It was this strange group of people called the Christians. I wonder what they're about because they loved me even when I was sick an outcast from society. Is it possible that we can make an idol out of our love for our next breath? As opposed to worshiping the one true God and loving our neighbor? 
Is it possible that that fear is rampant today? And that we have a possible witness of showing what true love is in the midst of fear? I think a very real question that Gideon leaves us is this. What things in your life have the dangerous ability to sneak into the place of God? And again, I don't think it's a, am I doing this? I think it's a, what am I doing this with? What things of of good, what are good roots that can sneak into the place of God? Our love of our next breath, our love of our children, our love of our spouse, our love of our job, our love of our mission for God becomes more important than worshiping the one true God. Now here's the amazing good news. Is that we know that this thing became a snare for Gideon. But if you look on in the text, we see in verse 28, So Midian was subdued before the Israelites, and they lift up their heads no more. So the land had rest. 40 years in the days of Gideon. That guy who made all those mistakes, who asked all those times for God to be sure, who had a snare of the Ephod, God gave through him peace to the people. The book of Judges is a book where God doesn't give up on us. We continue to do and sin and cry out for salvation and God continues to save us. So wherever you at, wherever you're at, whatever's going on, whatever thing that you're feeling right now has become your idol, allow yourself to truly repent, knowing that God is eager to forgive. God is eager to restore. And that even in the midst of that thing, he can bring peace for 40 years to the people of Israel. So let us, in the season of Lent, be searching for what we've put on the throne other than God. Let us be honest that it's easy to do. And let us repent so that we can put the living God on the throne. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who is alive, who's here, who is present. Lord, thank you for the story of Gideon, that we have the privilege of hearing that you can work through us, even in the midst of our sin and our failure, that you did all the credit for that work. And that, Lord, even, even when idols come up and, and they become a snare for us, they, they draw us in and we see them and, and they overcome us, allow us to repent, allow us to become aware, and allow us to lay it down at your cross so that we can follow you, the living God. We can learn what it's like to love our neighbor and our, to love you. Lord, help us to not be hung up on anything that's not you. But help us to fix our eyes on your love for us. And let that love overwhelm us and engage so that we can then go out and love others. We pray these things in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.